Welcome to the YLJ podcast. In today's episode, we're exploring organizing as a tool to combat political inequality and exercise power. I'm Kate Hamilton, a first-year YLJ editor on the podcast team. And I'm Raleigh Cavero, another first-year editor on the podcast. And I'm Rebecca Steele, the YLJ podcast editor. The 2020 election shed a lot of light onto the state of America's democracy, and one aspect it illuminated is the extent to which the wealthy exercise vastly disproportionate power over politics and government. Legal scholars have offered a number of reforms to combat this, and one emerging strategy involves harnessing the power of mass membership organizations. Professors Kate Andreas and Benjamin Sachs recently published an article in the Yale Law Journal on precisely this topic. They examine how law can facilitate political organizing, not just in workers' unions, a typical example of mass membership organization, but also amongst tenants, debtors, and public welfare recipients. They'll join us in today's episode to talk more about their piece, which is entitled Constructing Countervailing Power, Law and Organizing in an Era of Political Inequality. An organization that embodies these organizing principles is the National Domestic Workers Alliance. NDWA has built a powerful movement rooted in the rights and dignity of domestic workers, a group composed primarily of immigrants and women of color that are frequently excluded from traditional labor organizing. Their movement has achieved numerous political successes on both the state and federal levels. We are thrilled to have Ai-jen Poo, co-founder and executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, join us in the second half of this episode to discuss how these issues play out in practice. Professor Kate Andreas teaches at University of Michigan's Law School. She writes in Constitutional, Labor, and Administrative Law. Her current research focuses on the relationship between these areas of law and economic inequality. She also connects these ideas to questions of democratic governance. And Professor Benjamin Sachs is the Kessenbaum Professor of Labor and Industry at Harvard Law School. He is a leading expert in the field of labor law and labor relations. Professor Sachs teaches courses in many of these areas, uh, labor, employment, and law and social change. His writing focuses on union organizing, especially in American politics. Thank you so much for joining us, both of you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Of course. And um, if you wouldn't mind, would you start off just by summarizing your article? Sure. So I, I can take an initial crack at that. So the, the basic question our paper seeks to answer is how law can contribute to addressing the problem of political inequality which we consider to be um, a crisis in American democracy. Um, in particular, we set out to address the question of how law might do that, not through the traditional mechanisms of campaign finance or lobbying regulation, but instead by facilitating political organizing. That is, by facilitating the growth of collective organizations of lower and middle income Americans, Americans whose views are increasingly drowned out by the political power of wealth. To answer this question, we draw in part on what is, I guess we could say, an admittedly flawed model uh, of labor law. But we also move um, beyond labor law and draw lessons from the literature on social movements. And we conclude, in essence, that there are six key things that a law designed to facilitate political organizing by low and middle income people should do. Um, first, the law should grant rights in an explicit and direct way so as to create a frame that encourages collective action and organizing. 
Second, law should provide for a reliable source of financial resources for organizations. Third, law should guarantee free spaces, both physical and digital, in which movement organization can occur. Fourth, law should remove barriers to participation, um, both by protecting all of those involved in organizing from retaliation and by removing material obstacles that often make it so difficult for poor and working people to organize. Fifth, the law should provide organizations with ways to make meaningful material change in their members' lives, for example, by providing the right to bargain with the relevant set of private actors. And finally, the law should enable contestation and disruption, offering protections for the right to protest and strike. And throughout the paper, we, we use labor and the workplace as an animating example, but our ambition is to, to think about how law could serve these organizational purposes outside the labor context. And we, we, we think about tenant organizing, uh, organizing by uh, public benefits recipients, and debtor organizing. So Kate, you want to you add to that? Yeah, I would just add that um, that I think we're writing against a background of crisis, um, both an economic crisis and a democratic crisis. So we're you know we're we're writing against um, staggering levels of economic inequality and a deeply inadequate social welfare system. Um, and these problems have long plagued our society, but they're particularly acute. Um, they've been exacerbated by the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, and it's really clear that low and middle income people have insufficient amount of power in the democracy. And so we're trying to sort of get at that core problem um, and think about how law can help facilitate organizations so that working people and poor people can have more power in the democracy and in the political economy. I know that you mentioned labor law as a sort of animating principle for what protecting organizational rights could look like outside of the context of labor law. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about those examples that you mentioned, like tenant law and um, uh, other organizing outside of labor law. Uh, sure. So um, as, as Ben said, labor law creates a a system that protects workers' rights to organize. And it does so in a way that we both have written about in the past, in a way that is flawed and insufficient, but still in a way that um, that is important, right? It gives workers the right to engage in collective action. It gives workers the right to sit down and bargain with their employers. Um, and it creates mechanisms to sustain their organizations through funding. Um, um, and But in many other areas, uh, people don't have that those kinds of rights. So if you imagine um, tenants who are suffering from um, rising rents, from insufficient housing, from um, uh, poor poor living conditions, um, there is no in in the vast majority of localities there is no system that gives those tenants an affirmative right to organize that frames um, their um, situation as one that is worthy of that is unjust, right, and that is worthy of intervention. And so we can, so you can imagine a law of tenant unionism, essentially, where um, where the law, a different approach, would actually explicitly convey that substandard and unaffordable housing is an injustice, and that tenants have an affirmative right to organize and achieve fair housing for all. Um, it would enable organizing by guaranteeing safe spaces in which tenants and organizers could meet, could discuss their concerns. It would give organizers the right 
to access properties to engage tenants in organizing. It would provide organizers with tenants' names and contact information, um, and also would create mechanisms to fund those organizations um, through dues, checkoffs, through um, systems of uh, subsidies from landlords themselves. Um, and it could create resources to train tenant leaders, to allow tenants to bargain collectively with their landlords, and also grant tenants a seat at the table in regulatory processes when housing issues are discussed. So it's essentially imagining a whole infrastructure that would encourage the growth um, and flourishing of organizations so that tenants could have uh, greater influence over issues of housing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, are there other sort of examples that you can think of this frame applying to um, just off the top of your head? Well, I mean, the the, the paper um, uh, discusses uh, the, the public benefits context um, and the and the and the debt context as as uh, other examples. Um, I think I think those are not meant to be that is not meant to be an exclusive list. Um, you know, I guess what I'll say is we, um, as we were framing the paper and, and thinking about um, how to approach this question, one uh, important issue for us was um, whether it made sense to think about this form of legal intervention um, as a way of uh, facilitating the growth of, say, a poor people's movement generally or a, a, like a working class political party. Um, and we, we thought that um, a, a better approach was to think about facilitating organizing in contexts, um, in context of exploitation and inequality. Um, and, and I think that um, th that is not to say that uh, you couldn't have a, a law designed to facilitate poor people's, uh, poor people's movement more generally. Um, and the context that we chose were ones suggested by history, where has organizing uh, worked? Where has it? Where is it ongoing today? Where are the needs critical? Where is the exploitation and in inequity most stark? Um, and uh, so, those are the four that we discuss in the paper. But there are others, and and you know, one one place you might look is, um, you know, school organizing K twelve uh, uh, might be another interesting context, um, and. Um, so, so organizing in context, and, and the last thing I'll say on this is um, the, the theory of the paper is meant to apply uh, broadly. So the, the, the methodology of the paper is how does organizing work sort of cross-contextually um, and, and hopefully uh, will be exportable beyond the four areas that we, we decide to use as examples. Okay, great. I um I wanted to follow up and on that on that point, and then also pick up on something that Professor Andrea said earlier. Um, you guys discuss a few different ways to fund these types of organizing, right? You discuss dues models or state subsidies, um, and you had mentioned all of those before. I think there were three main ones you talked about. Um, it's interesting how you guys have some flexibility in that, that they can apply to all the different areas, right? They can apply to students, they can apply to tenants. Um, and so I was curious, is there one of those models like subsidies or dues that you think is preferable? Or would you envision a combination of all of them? Um, how do you envision that working? So, the, so in the article, I think we're agnostic on the question because I think that the answer might depend on the context. Um, but I would say that I, um, I think that um, dues 
is a critical component of having strong membership organizations because it creates um, ownership over the organization. So one big difference between the way labor organizations, the way unions have been funded and the way a lot of nonprofits have been funded is that unions are self-funded. Workers contribute to them and therefore exercise a lot of ownership over their direction. Um, Whereas nonprofits, because they depend so heavily on, on elites, on foundations for donations, often don't always get to set their agenda. Um, and um, so, so certainly dues are an important component, but they're also not always, um, uh, dues mechanism isn't always sufficient, um, particularly when you have really low wage um, workers or low wage members. Um, and so I think we envision multiple mechanisms of funding um, um, in order to supplement kind of a membership driven system. So um, uh, for example, state funding, which has worked effectively in the past, for example, to fund organizations to engage in training and in um, and in organizing activity, um, state as in government, um, and also um, subsidies from um, the entities themselves so that they are, as in landlords um, and banks and um, uh, companies, so that they are partially responsible for because they have so much capital, right, for helping um, to fund these organizations which are so critical to our democracy. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, uh, I, I'll say one other thing, just a little bit in the weeds of the law here, um, which we cover in part in the paper, which is um, the Supreme Court has, is making it difficult, not impossible, but difficult to um, for social movement organizations to rely on a dues model um, where with a holding recently um, that there's a constitutional obstacle, at least it, when the when we're dealing with a, a, a public sector actor um, to require members to pay uh, a fair share of the expenses of the social movement organization. Um, so part of the impetus to um, lay out some other options in the paper is to deal with this hurdle that the Supreme Court, in, in our view, inappropriately puts in, in the way of, of certain kinds of dues-funded organizations. I know that you just mentioned this and the Supreme Court rulings as well, but um, as you note in the article too, it's a really tough climate for social movement organizations and countervailing the influence of the wealthy generally. Um, so how can we go about uh, building support for these prescriptive recommendations in kind of a climate that feels hostile to them sometimes? It's true that it, we are living in dark times, um, you know, at times of really staggering economic inequality, of democratic crisis, of lots of obstacles. But I think we're also living in really hopeful times in the sense that we see an upsurge of organizing among lots of groups where there had been less organizing, um, less social movement activity in past years. So that's certainly true among the domestic workers, which have done an amazing job of building organization among um, immigrant, um, frequently immigrant, frequently vulnerable workers. Um, It's true among tenants' rights groups. It's true among um, folks organizing around um, the criminal justice system. It's true among students who are organizing. So there is around debt issues. Um, So there's an upsurge in organizing, which gives me hope that this is actually really a very important time and a um, a fruitful time to start talking about how we can create legal reforms to facilitate and support those on-the-ground organizing efforts. Um, And in the paper, we talk a little bit about like strategically about how to think about that um, program. So I think, I don't think we're envisioning um, federal 
wholesale law reform in the near future. Um, but um, certainly in progressive states and localities, there are ways to um, start experimenting with some of these ideas. And in fact, um, social movement organizations already are experimenting with some of these ideas on the ground and are having success. So I'm actually um, optimistic about the possibility for these kinds of reforms. And I think, um, you know, the paper really highlights why they're so critical at this moment. And one of the last things that we were curious to explore with you guys um, was the rise you mentioned, um, you know, the rise of membership organizations in the mid 20th century and then how they've recently declined. And so how does your paper work in that historical context? Do you kind of see this as a revival of those? Um, you know, how and why do you think that would be um, successful? Not to repeat, of course, what you just talked about, um, but, you know, just kind of putting this in a historical context. Yeah, so there were a lot of reasons why we saw the rise of membership organizations in the early and middle part of the 20th century. Um, and um, law was by no means the only reason, but it certainly was an important um, component of that rise. Um, the enactment of the National Labor Relations Act um, and um, gave you know birth or helped facilitate um, the growth of um, major industrial unions. Um, and then um, other, there are other examples as well, such as the um, community action programs during the Johnson War on Poverty um, and um, uh, various other um, legal interventions that help social movement organizations grow. And we see that um, change um, really um, in the, starting in the 1970s, um, where the where we start seeing a real drop off in the level of membership organizations, um, and again, law is an important part of that story. Um, the uh, particularly in the context of labor unions. So the National Labor Relations Act was amended in the late 1940s, making it much harder for workers to organize, harder for workers to exercise economic power through strikes and protests. Um, and those changes um, were subsequently exploited by employers um, in the really aggressively beginning in the late 1970s um, with employers changing the way they organize their businesses, fissuring out employment, moving employment over, uh, moving jobs overseas, moving jobs, um, increasingly relying on contracting um, and taking advantage of all the ways in which labor law did not uh, give workers enough power over those kinds of decisions. Or another example is um, labor law permits employers to permanently replace strikers. And starting in the um, really the 1980s, we see employers starting to take advantage of that um, that legal flaw, right, and use that to weaken unions and to break unions. Um, so um, we do think it's important to understand the role that law played both in facilitating these organizations in the first place, but then also in helping um, uh, contribute to their demise. And so um, I guess one point of the paper is that the absence of strong organizations among poor and working people is not a natural occurrence. It's not some kind of inevitable collective action problem. It's something that's a policy choice. And we could make a different policy choice um, if we want to have a democracy with vibrant um, participation by low and middle income people. We're not, by no means um, arguing that sort of law is the only 
important factor here. We're just focusing on the way, certainly like cultural changes um, contributed a rise of sort of in, the individual or greater emphasis on technocracy and market solutions, right? Um, but we're focused on um, sort of the way in which law helps structure the environment in which um, organization exists and how it could look different. I'm wondering, obviously, you can't predict the future, but if you sense the idea that there might be any unintended consequences of this sort of framework that you lay out and what they might be. Um, I think that's a, that's a, a critical question for any project like this. Um, and one, you know, one feature of this proposal is that it intends to facilitate political organization among uh, poor, low and middle income people. It is relatively agnostic as to the valence of the of the politics that will emerge from those organizations, um, and I, I think there's reason to believe, given the context in which the organizing would take place, um, that there would be some tilt. But it's very possible that our proposals would lead to the growth of some right wing political organizations. Um, you know that that is not in itself a failure of the of the model or of the approach. That is, if the goal is to increase the responsiveness of government to low and middle income people, um, that's going to that's in some sense a success. But I think that there are there are we worry about uh, about that aspect of the proposal. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Uh, for listeners interested in learning more, we recommend taking a look at their article, Constructing Countervailing Power, Law and Organizing in an Era of Political Inequality, which was just published in the Yale Law Journal. Today we're discussing Ben Sachs and Kate Andreas's article, Constructing Countervailing Power, Law and Organizing in an Era of Political Inequality with Ai-jen to us, Ijin's pathbreaking work exemplifies the article's thesis, and we are so looking forward to discussing the ways in which she has organized and advocated on issues affecting domestic workers across the country. Ijin Pu is the co-founder and executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, a nonprofit organization working to bring quality work, dignity, and fairness to the growing numbers of workers who care and clean in our homes, the majority of whom are immigrants and women of color. In 12 short years, the National Domestic Workers Alliance has passed domestic worker bill of rights in nine states and in the city of Seattle and brought over 2 million home care workers under minimum wage protections. In 2011, IGEN launched Caring Across Generations to unite American families in a campaign to achieve bold solutions to the nation's crumbling care infrastructure. She is also a leading voice in the women's movement and co-founded Supermajority, a new home for women's activism training and mobilizing a multiracial intergenerational community who will fight for gender equity together. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ijen. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And you did the whole bio. <laughs> it's an impressive bio and we are so excited to have you joining us on the podcast. I'm excited to talk to you guys and... Um, yeah, I think this paper and this topic is pretty essential for this moment. Absolutely. We'd love to start, if it's all right with you, by learning a little about how you came to focus on building a movement of domestic workers in particular. Uh, we're curious about whether you see the movement that you and NDWA has developed as fitting into the broader potential of wielding collective power to challenge inequality. Yeah, so um, I'm an organizer, which means that um, I get up every day 
thinking about how to put more power in the hands of more people, especially everyday people um, who may be disenfranchised in a number of different ways. Um, as organizers, we believe that real social change only happens when we shift power and more people are able to build and wield power together. Um, so absolutely, the whole mission of the National Domestic Workers Alliance is to create a platform to bring domestic workers together to be powerful in our economy and in our democracy. Thank you. That's really important. And speaking of the different ways of building power, could you tell us a little bit about the relationship between on the ground community level organizing, like your work visiting every playground in New York City to speak with nannies and the and how that plays into the political process? We know that NDWA has an explicitly political arm and that played a critical role in passing a domestic workers bill of rights in nine different states and all the advocacy for a national bill in Congress as well. So we're curious about how you go about harnessing the collective power you've built to enact that kind of political change on such a broad scale. Well, everything is really rooted and anchored with domestic workers themselves. And whether we're engaging with domestic workers in local communities um, around the country, meeting in church basements or in immigrant community centers or community colleges or transportation hubs, or if we're meeting people online um, through Facebook or um, through WhatsApp, that we're actually uh, building relationships with domestic workers and really hearing from them, understanding their experiences, understanding their dreams, their concerns, their aspirations, their struggles. And that is what informs everything that we do at every level, all of our strategies. And our strategies are about shifting power um, but maybe not in the traditional sense that people are accustomed to because domestic workers are a really interesting group of people to be thinking about building power with because it's a group that, as you said, is um, overwhelmingly women and mostly women of color, Black, Latinx, Asian, Native, immigrant women of color. And... Uh, this work as a profession has always been associated with work that women will do and is kind of taken for granted in our economy. And um, as a profession, it's always been associated with women of color. In fact, some of our first domestic workers were enslaved Black women in this country. And culturally, we don't even refer to it as a real profession still in this day and age. We still call it help, right? as opposed to a real job, which it is for literally millions of people. Um, and so there's that, and there's this really long history of exclusion from legal protections dating back to the New Deal um, when Congress refused to enact some of our foundational labor laws if they included equal protections for farm workers and domestic workers who were black at the time. Um, and this workforce is incredibly disaggregated. So you have all these women working behind closed doors and you don't know which homes are also workplaces and there's no list of where everybody's working and who everybody is, it's so invisible. And so to think about how you build power and how you make change in that context is actually super complicated. So we've had to be really creative 
And what we think about is power along multiple dimensions. Um, one being the what we call political power, which is the power to change policy and who makes it. Um, we also think about how we build economic power, which we define as the power to direct capital and shape markets. Um, and we think a lot about narrative power, which we define as the power to tell the story of why things are the way that they are on your terms. So essentially the power to define reality for more and more people in this country. And so our work is rooted with domestic workers. And in fact, we have domestic worker leadership councils at every level of our organization, really defining our goals and our strategies and um, putting forward their vision for fairness. And then we try to change policy. We try to change politics. We try to change the narrative to value domestic work and the people who do it. Um, and all of that is a part of the movement building organizing work we do as the domestic workers movement. So whether it's the National Domestic Workers Alliance advocating for a bill of rights for domestic workers, or it's care in action, mobilizing women of color voters to get to the polls. Um, it's all about figuring out how we put more power in the hands of domestic workers and women of color to, to shape our future. I know um, that you just mentioned that sort of one of the trickier aspects of this is that um, domestic workers are a population that has typically been excluded by various labor protections. Um, so I'm curious as to what parts of the sort of framework that people think of as traditional labor organization um, applies and, and which are sort of less applicable to this uh, new kind of movement. Well, we are um, an organization of workers that is a democratic organization in that our board is elected by other workers and it is a group of domestic workers and we have democratically elected worker councils uh, within every workforce that we represent. So we have a nanny council, we have a house cleaner council, we have a gig worker council for domestic workers who work through online platforms um, and we have a home care council. Um, and those councils really inform and shape the work that we do. Um, and we have members. We have this incredible community of domestic workers all over the country who contribute their dues. Um, they contribute their time, their energy, their love, and their care to building a strong organization. And it's, it's not in a collective bargaining model. That's the difference. Um, so unions under the National Labor Relations Act are a protected group of organizations that um, are allowed to formally unionize and then bargain collectively for contracts that cover benefits and wages and, and other matters. And we don't, in domestic work, not only are we excluded from the formal right to organize and form a union, but if you think about it, there's no collective because it's really one worker per workplace usually. Um, and then there's really nobody to bargain with. It's not like there's a McDonald's or a Walmart in our industry. It's really just everyday families who are in need of care, which is pretty much all of us at one point or another. So it is different in that way. And um, 
And there are many similarities in that the workers in this industry need a voice and the best way for them to have a voice and have power is to come together, just like in other industries. What kinds of law could sort of facilitate this coming together? Well, we, um, Senator Harris, who is now our vice president, and Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal introduced a national domestic worker bill of rights into Congress. And we think that that legislation not only addresses these historic long-standing exclusions, also offers a framework for how to secure a historically undervalued and insecure workforce um, for the 21st century to be able to create a pathway for these jobs to become jobs that, you know, one generation can do better than the next and you can take pride in what you do and have real economic mobility, um, which is where where I think we need to be. Um, and part of the Bill of Rights creates what we call a Domestic Workers Standards Board which is a mechanism through which you can bring together every industry stakeholder to sit at the table together to talk about what should be fair standards for this work across the industry. And some people refer to it as sectoral bargaining, um, but it is essentially a mechanism to bring workers, employers, and government together to really shape the future together in partnership. And we think that that is a really strong model for domestic workers, given how disaggregated the workforce is and how many immigrants are part of the workforce. Sachs and Andreas are very focused on the types of funding mechanisms necessary to sustain these types of movements. Um, and they ultimately advocated dues model that is facilitated by law. They consider state subsidies, uh, dues-based models, and reliance on charitable organizations. But they ultimately advocate for a more multi-pronged approach. Um, so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how NBWA is funded and um, the sorts of considerations that went into designing a sustainable but also independent funding structure. Mm -hmm. We also agree in a multi-pronged approach. Um, we believe that um, a domestic workers organization should be supported by domestic workers and it should be supported by everyone because everyone has a stake in this workforce being strong and sustainable. And, um, and a lot of the work that we do is advocating for gender equity, for um, immigrant inclusion, for racial equity, for better jobs, right? These are things that everyone has a stake in. And so we think that everyone should also be allowed to support and help sustain the organization that makes this work possible. Um, so we have money from um, individuals who contribute online. Uh, for example, we have membership dues from domestic workers we have private foundations and philanthropies who give resources. We have individual donors who give, who are, who are people of wealth who support us, um, oftentimes in honor of the domestic worker who raised them. Um, so we have all kinds of people and organizations who are supporting us. We don't receive at the moment government funding um, but pretty much every other vehicle. And it's always been our goal to have um, 
a diverse, as diverse revenue stream as possible and as many domestic workers contributing to sustaining the organization as possible. We're curious how you view the relationship between academic scholarship and organizing more broadly, and if you have thoughts on how it can be improved in order for scholarship to be of assistance and useful to organizers. Mm -hmm. I think scholarship is really important to analyze the challenges that we are up against in real time that people's everyday people's organizations like the Domestic Workers Alliance um, need to be addressing. So for example, I regularly have a conversation with an economist at Harvard named Larry Katz, who is able to very quickly break down for me how dynamics in the economy are changing and what that means for the service industry as a whole, for jobs like domestic workers or care jobs. And that insight from the data that he's seeing is so helpful for me because then I can see, I can match that and align that with what we're hearing from domestic workers on the ground every day. And we can actually help flesh out the data that they're seeing. And it's kind of a partnership in that way. Um, another example of something I've seen is really powerful is um, you know, we have partnered with law clinics over the years. And um, one thing that happened when, and this goes to the, the home care rule change that brought 2 million home care workers under minimum wage protections. It was with um, the Yale Worker and Immigrant Rights Clinic who represented us in the early days of the Obama administration. And we took the very first meeting of domestic workers to the Department of Labor in 2009, and we were represented by the law clinic and the professors there, and the students had put together an incredible menu of regulatory and administrative changes that could make a real difference in labor law enforcement for domestic workers. And literally having all of that research in place and then having the workers come in and give the reality of the picture of domestic workers' experiences and why these reforms and changes would actually make a real difference, that partnership was really critical and a huge building block to how we brought 2 million home care workers under minimum wage protections. That kind of partnership between organizers and academics, I think is incredibly powerful and impactful. What I think is less helpful is what I sometimes see as um, academics who study social movements and critique those movements without actually deeply understanding the strategy and without interrogating, like really, I, I'm a big proponent of critique and debate because I think that's how we grow and how we improve. But I sometimes see academics critiquing social movements and activism um, from a pretty ungrounded place and from a place that is actually not accurate, not an accurate reflection of what is happening in that movement. And that to me is, um, is not assisting in the project. But maybe that's not the point either. I know that there's scholarship for scholarship's sake too, so. 
Um, I know that you touched on this a little bit with um, sort of the reference to data and organizing in rural America, but I'm curious if you've sort of what your major takeaways are about building collective power in this time of sharp polarization. Um, I think there are two things. One is that there are no shortcuts to engaging with listening and building real trust and relationship with people, everyday people. And we have to do that um, as movements. We have to figure out how we organize and campaign in every corner of this country so that everyone feels like they belong in our vision of the future and we have to prove that they do. Um, that's one piece. So there's no shortcuts around the hard work of organizing people, real people. Um, and then the second piece is that the far right wing has a very powerful media infrastructure. And that media infrastructure combined with the power of the platforms, the combination of the two just means that there are there's a huge percentage of the country that is living inside of a reality where the meaning that they're making of why things are the way they are in the world is just um, is highly problematic and dangerous. And so dangerous to the fundamental underpinnings of our democracy. And so I think that in addition to the organizing, we have to find a way to address the power of the right-wing media and the power of the platforms together to distort reality for huge, huge segments of our, of our electorate. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ijen. Your work and the work of the National Domestic Workers Alliance is such a powerful example of movement organizing. And we so appreciate the time that you took today to speak with us about your organization's strategy, your history, and so many of your successes. So we've learned a lot and we really appreciate all of your perspectives. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm so glad that you all are um, learning about and thinking about power in this way. It's great. The Yale Law Journal podcast is a production of the Yale Law Journal. Thanks to Ryan McAvoy and the wonderful folks at the Yale Broadcast Studio for making this production possible. If you like the show, don't forget to share it and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts.